0: So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, can you read from verse 13 to
1: 18? 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18? Yes. Says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are falling asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Um, at any case, so a plain reading of these verses is indicates that the the indicates the themes and the topics that Paul is dealing with, right? And the fact that what we're looking at is not at all complicated at least not in the language or in the expectation so in the course of this letter paul is is building on the three pillars of christianity right faith towards god love and then hope and we have looked extensively at these three pillars and we have said that each of these three pillars is necessary it's a necessary element it's a necessary principle it's a necessary pillar right for dealing with god for transacting with god because of the nature of God, right? So because God is spirit, because God is not material, because God is not corporal, it's necessary that if you're going to deal with God, you're going to have to deal with God by faith, right? Because you cannot see God with your eyes and the human our human makeup is more prone to trust what we can see. And also because God is infinitesimal, right? Because God is unlimited, we cannot fully reason God. Right? We cannot put God in a an intellectual box. And if, if we do that, we often find that he doesn't fit in. Right? We, we have experiences and situations that 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 shatter the boundaries of those of that box and make us rethink the nature of God. And so because of these practical limitations in dealing with God, it's necessary that we have faith, right? And like we've always said, faith is a sovereign activity of God inside of our hearts. And in Thessalonians, This this church, Paul attested that this church had authentic faith, right? Because God had worked in their heart. But you see, when God works in your heart and something sovereign, something holy happens in your heart, there's an outworking, right? That that produces, and that's what you can call the acts of faith. And the primary act of faith is the labor of love, and that's why love is the primary pillar, right? Of is one of it's the primary pillar of our, of our belief in God, right? Of our relationship to the supernatural, um, immortal God, right? Because we like we've all, we've always said when there is nothing to have faith for, when everything else, when every problem has faded into the background, right? And all that is left is pure humanity, fellowshipping with God, as God designed it originally. Then the only thing that will be left. Is is the measure of love, is the value of love. That's the only thing that will be left. It will be, it will be a an aeon of of love infinite. So the labor of love that we show towards one another that is not externally motivated, but is motivated by the inner working of God in our hearts, right, is one of the proofs and one of the pillars of Christian faith. And then. A key pillar of Christian faith, which is highlighted in these verses and in everything related to eschatology, is the pillar of hope, right? We've said that that you need faith in dealing with God. You need love in dealing with God, but you also need hope, right? And if you remember our very first study in chapter one of this letter, we said that the reason why you need hope is because God works, the purposes of God are worked up or rather work out in times and in seasons. And God does not necessarily reveal those timings and those seasons. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 said that there is a particular hour and a particular day, right, when the Son of Man will return. And even the (laughs) Son, even the Son does not know that hour, right? Right? Um, In Acts chapter 1, the way that Jesus explained it is that there are certain things which the Father has kept in his own authority. Because if there is nothing that is exclusive to God, then he's no longer God, right? So even though, for example, God invites us into the company of the beloved, right? And he he makes us co-heirs with his son, Christ, he doesn't share the privileges of the Godhead with us. And that's why he's God and we are not right? For example, he doesn't share his omni qualities with us. It's not as though he cannot do it, but he doesn't. He retains it in his own authority so that only God is all-knowing and you and I forever will only have a part to play. It means that you and I will have to be faithful in our part And that's why faithfulness is an important component. Faithfulness, which is what we said, is the spirit of faith, right? Faithfulness is an important component for us in working with God because we do not see the big picture. We cannot see the big picture. We probably will never see the big picture because we are only a part of a whole and only God holds the big picture, the full picture, the complete picture for all eternity. And so... The only way to deal with God is faith. But well, I, I went this route, right? To say that hope is a necessary element in in working with God, right? Because something may be apportioned may be to you. Something may be guaranteed to you by the promise of God, by the fidelity of God. But the thing that God promises you, right? May be tied up to a certain season and a certain time. Now, when that is the case, you cannot fit such a thing. Right, like like your faith can only give you the things that are for now. Yes, those are the things that your faith can give you. And every time your faith works, it is because the thing that you're asking for is for now, and and your faith has stumbled into the timing of God, and you are persuaded that the timing of God is right, and you step into what God has. But you see, the question of times and seasons is never violated in God's operations. I'm saying that to say that it's because of the reality of times and seasons that we need hope in our work with God, that each of us needs a posture, right? An attitude, a position that what I have right now is wonderful, but it's not God's best for me, right? And even though God loves me, I still don't have God's best for me. And he's not withholding it from me. He's He's rather withholding it for me. Those purposes are locked up in times and seasons, right? If you look at Abraham, when God came to Abraham, God began to give him a promise that could not be fulfilled in his lifetime. Now, there were elements of the promise that could come to pass in his lifetime, right? So for example, he could step into the land and he could build tents and altars into the land, but there was no way in his lifetime, except if he lived forever, That Abraham could inherit the full scope of what God was offering him. Remember that God is not limited to time. Like you and I are limited to time. So God was secure enough to give Abraham a promise that was bigger than Abraham. That would outlast Abraham's lifetime on earth. So it means that there was a part of Abraham's calling that was supposed to be that part was supposed to be prosecuted by hope. There were certain parts of Abraham's calling that was supposed to be prosecuted by faith, right? So for example, when it was time for Isaac to come forth, the Bible says that by faith, Sarah received strength and she gave birth. Now the, the, the bringing of Isaac into the world was a necessary part that had to happen in Abraham's lifetime. It was not an element of hope, even though for a long time, because of God's timing, it was a matter of hope. But in Abraham's lifetime, he could lay hold of it by faith. Right? But many other aspects of the promise were not going to happen in his lifetime. The best that he could have was a token, a vision, a clear understanding of it. And that's why Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my dear. That's all he got he could get of the promise. He saw it. And that's why when you read the the m um, m um, m the chapter on faith, right? Hebrews chapter eleven, it tells it tells you in Hebrews chapter eleven that the people, right, these examples of faith that he had just listed to you and I, right, that they had this testimony that they desired the city, whose builder and whose maker is God, that despite the blessings, the increase, right, and the and the little tokens of fulfilment that they experienced in their lives, they had a substance of hope in their hearts that transcended anything they could ex- they could ex they could experience in their lives. Now, why did I go this route, right, to explain all of this stuff? Is to say that you and I, as Christians, there is a certain aspect of our Christianity and our calling that is promised, but it's not yet actualized. And in God's wisdom, that aspect of our calling of our salvation will not be actualized in this physical body. That is that is God's wisdom and timing, right? He has made up his mind that it's going to be like that, you know, because when Jesus died on the cross, when he saved us, right, his salvation could immediately have transformed our physical bodies, right? Because our, our physical body is the seat that contains a lot of the things that keep us bound and tied down by this world, right? Both positively and negatively. And so his resurrection from the death, right, could immediately have have brought immortality to light and all of us would have been clothed with immortality. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, decided that nothing about your physical makeup is necessarily going to change. Of course, the blood of Jesus is enough to heal your body of sickness, right? To sustain your body from destruction while you have work to do on earth. But that's the most that it can do, right? It can sustain your body. But God has determined that this vile body cannot inherit the kingdom. So you're going to have to put it off. You and I are going to have to put it off one way or the other. Either we put it off in death (laughs) or we put it off at the appearing of Jesus. So it means that such a key element of our hope, or rather of our salvation, has not been actualized. And that's why in many scriptures, you're going to see that salvation is often used in the past tense, right? And salvation is also used in the future tense. In fact, in Thessalonians here, salvation is primarily used in the future tense. And that's to say that, there is an aspect of our believing that we need to keep believing to the end for. Right? Yes. So the fact that we have not inherited what God promised, and all of this is going to make sense when we start looking at eschatology, right? The fact that we have not inherited what God promised does not in any way diminish the promise. It does not make it less sure because sometimes you can read the uncertainty that surrounds things to come it's been 2000 years jesus has not come have we missed it somewhere you know is everything still sure you see the fact that it does not come to pass does not diminish the surety of it hebrews tells us that the new covenant was established on two immutable things by which god cannot lie right and so even though god didn't need to swear because if god gives a promise the promise of God by its nature is immutable, right? But even though God didn't need to swear, he swore when he established the priesthood of Christ that this is going to be a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and that they're going to be priests after you and that I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. And our salvation and our inclusion in the kingdom of God is tied to that covenant. So the fact that we haven't inherited it the fact that it appears to tarry does not diminish its certainty, right? Does not diminish its, its, its reality. It will happen. It's just not factored yet in the seasons of God. So all of that was to say that we need hope in our work with God. And our hope needs to be a high quality hope. Like I always say, it's not the hope of a breakthrough in ministry. A hope the hope of a breakthrough in life. For for like for those things, you need faith, not hope. But our hope needs to be a, a pure hope. The hope that it's our destiny to be like Christ, and God has not forgotten that destiny, and He is at work to make us like Christ, both in our souls and one day in our bodies. John says that whoever has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he's pure. And we're going to see why shortly. So coming back to the verse in front of us, right? You can already imagine that um, the Thessalonians understood that there is a futuristic aspect to our hope, right? Something we need to hold on to or something that causes us to hold on to our faith, something that makes our faith precious, the fact that our bodies will be changed. And then being a nascent young church, they were worried about what happened to people who had died, right? Because I guess all they knew at this point was that the appearing of the Lord was imminent. And when the the Lord appears, our bodies will be changed, right? But then they they didn't know what will happen. (laughs) They didn't know what will happen to those who had died. And it's a legitimate question for us to ponder on, right? Because you might think, I don't know if you're like me and you have had these thoughts before that when somebody dies, right, in some cultures, they actually burn up the body and, and, and they throw with the ashes or do whatever they want to do with the ashes, right? How on earth is the body going to come back together, <laughs> right, in the resurrection? Because the burning up of the ashes of someone gives you the impression that the person is completely destroyed and the person ceases to exist right? You may have asked yourself that question before, or you can even ask yourself a question, even if somebody is buried normally into the earth, science, we know medically that the body disintegrates. And if you dig up that same place, um, months, weeks, years, centuries later, the only thing you'll find is bones, you know, and sometimes there's an erosion and everything is washed up, right? Um, So how is the person going to rise again? Have you ever asked this question? Or what are some of your own questions about the dead and the resurrection of the dead that, you know, you would like us to address today?
2: Okay. Personally, I try not Mm -hmm. to think about it, but each time somebody dies, I think it's mostly like a reflection period for me because I feel like um I just I I I just begin to think that okay, I hope I'm sure living a life that if I die today, I will shall make heaven because I think that's like the ultimate goal. If you make heaven, I think the resurrection is now sure. So most of the time my focus is on okay. I hope my everyday life is one that is worthy of heaven, kind of.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Gola, for sharing. And what is it that makes somebody worthy of heaven?
2: Okay, I think um The first and foremost is you and Jesus Christ having a relationship with Him, knowing Him, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and He also knowing you. And when you and I think your life, because you can't, you can't, you can't live a life that doesn't honor God, or how do I even put it? And still expect to make heaven. Mm -hmm. I think it's your life and your relationship with God. That's like the main point.
0: Yes? Any other thoughts? Thank you so much, Gola.
3: Okay, um, well, for me, I I think about death and um like Golda said, I think about it more when maybe someone close to me dies or something. And then before now I used to have this idea that Once your son is in purpose, you're doing the will of God, you're serving God, you really know God, like you're making impact on earth. Somehow that long life is assured, kind of. But um, recently I'm not so sure of that anymore because I've seen people that I, I know really love God just die like that. And for me, I just... Like, I've taken the fact that I'm alive as a privilege, and I'm all, I'm just like, okay, God, what would you have me do? What can I do now? How can I live my life to the fullest now that I'm here? And I take each day as a gift because, well, in a sense, there's no guarantee of being like um, to keep being on this side. Mm-hmm. I hope I make sense. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's worth it. Thank you, Anna. And maybe it's worth touching on the on the topic of death, right? Because the position of the New Testament, the position of Scripture as a whole, is that death for each of us is an appointment, right? Death is not an accident. I know that in our world, because of how death happens, death often happens very accidentally, right? So there is always a sense of tragedy to death. I mean, and it's not only just because death happens right? Accidentally, right? Death provokes loss, a, a feeling of loss, a strong sense of loss. It provokes the kind of feelings in us that nothing else about life, right? Can, can provoke, right? So all of those things are factors that contribute to why death has such a strong grip on us. Also, debt, um reflects the possibility of the unknown, you know? Um, and like the unknown, unknown, I don't know of many people that are very happy and um, confident to go into an eternal unknown. You know, there are certain unknowns that are just illusory, you know, or temporal or just a game. But death is not a game. There is no second chance at it. It's an eternal unknown. So it's terrifying for the natural man. But the thing the Bible makes us understand is that death for each of us is an appointment not an accident, right? It's an appointment. So it it means by implication that each of us, whether or not we like to think about debt, right? Depending on, you know, how you like to approach life, you may not even like to think about debt too much and that's okay. But whatever your take is on it, you need to prepare for the appointment, right? You need to prepare for the appointment. And like Golda pointed out, there are two bases upon which you can be certain of how the appointment will go right? The first basis upon which you can be certain is that you have met with Jesus and that he knows you, right? And the only way Jesus can know you is that you bow the knee to him, right? You bow the knee to him and you confess him as Lord and you agree that in death, you cannot pay for your sins. And when you stand before a holy God, he's going to find fault with you. I I, I don't know how much I can emphasize this in our in our ears and in our hearts, right, that often it's very easy for us to to look at ourselves and really think that we're doing well. And I find out that it's in those moments, it's in those moments where we think that we're really doing well, that God often has the most things against us. And, and then by mercy, God begins to take us on a journey, and then we begin to see our hearts. We begin to see that maybe by your own definition of lust, lust is not in your heart, <laughs> but by God's definition of it, it's in your heart. So by, by bowing the knee to Jesus, you acknowledge that 99% righteousness is, is not going to be enough before an absolutely holy, spotless God. So the verdict of judgment has already been passed. In fact, the fact that you even died in the first place is already proof that judgment was already on you. All right, that's why all men die. That's why death is the level of all men. And so in death... If the only hope, the primary hope that we have, the primary hope that we have is that we bow the knee to Jesus. We trusted him. But you see, the, like the New Testament also makes it clear that the thing that we believed at the beginning, we have to keep believing it to the end, right? Because the just shall live by faith, right? Because there's there's a righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith. And the correct translation of faith to faith there is faith from first to last. So the first question is, (laughs) does Jesus know you? Second question is, does Jesus still know you, right? Now, of course, there are certain arms of theology and certain arms of grace that will try to tell you things like once saved, right, is forever saved. And they try to um, put, and obviously, if you try to build such a theology, you will find, Let's say 50% of the verses that will support such a theology, right? That once saved is forever saved. But if you also try to build the opposite case through scripture, that once saved is not forever saved, you'll find at least 50% of the scriptures that also support that position. Right? So what it means at the very least is that if you decide that you want to you want to fall asleep, you want to be you want to be um, unfaithful to Jesus, (laughs) you are putting your life on a 50-50 chance, right? And I think that God made it deliberately like that because um, he's ultimately the judge of all men, right? And only him can determine and decide at which point a line was crossed. None of us can answer that question. And God didn't give us any of the tools to answer that question. So the question is why... Why go for a 50/50 arrangement right? when you can live your life with the understanding that my life matters, Jesus cares about my heart, he cares about my conduct, he cares about my life and it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. it doesn't mean that I don't have struggles, it doesn't mean that I don't have mistakes, but but my heart must be seeking Jesus. At least if you live like that you can be guaranteed that based on what the Word of God says, death. It's nothing to fear for you, right? But even if, let's say, you, you, you somehow live your life unfaithful to Jesus, but because of his mercy, you end up in heaven, like the New Testament also gives us sufficient glimpses, let's put it like this, to show that not everybody will be excited to see Jesus. I mean, they will be saved, right? At the end of the day. But think about it. You and I, one day, we're going to see Jesus <laughs> face to face. There's not going to be a preacher in between us. There's not going to be a worship leader in between us. There's not going to be a song, you know, to stir our emotions in between. It's just going to be you and him. First John chapter 1, chapter 2, rather, verse 28, tells us that in that day, in that day, many will be ashamed right? And if you just try to picture it, what is it that can make me ashamed when I see Jesus? This is the one that loves me, that gave his life for me, that has eyes of fire, that has hair like wool. What is it about my life that can make me ashamed? And is it even something to desire that me, my goal is just to reach heaven, even if I end up ashamed in front of Jesus? Is it something to desire? You know, like we said, there are many questions we cannot answer, you know, which is that what will happen to people who fall into that category, right? And to what degree um, would there be any kind of retribution in the age to come? The only thing we can say is that there are definitely glimpses of it when you read things, like when you read parables, like like the ten virgins, right, or the unfaithful servant. There, there are glimpses of a sort of, retribution, even in the age to come, of a of a sense of shame at seeing the Lord. Right? But what is clear to us is that we do not have to make that our goal. Right? What we need to make our goal is that whether we live or die, we are pleasing to the Lord. As long as that is our goal, yes, we are going to make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. Until this body of flesh is redeemed, the work the sanctifying work of the holy spirit is going to continue but as long as our goal is to be pleasing to jesus right then we can be sure of where we stand and the appointment with death is not anything to fear in fact in fact you can be so in tune with jesus that the appointment of death is something to look forward to because you know that for the believer if the gospel is true, then it means that the best is yet to come. It means that whatever version of you that you think is the best, you haven't seen it yet. And that is the great divide. It's the thing that ushers you into well done, good and faithful servant. It's the thing that ushers you into your rest, into that final and ultimate rest. So there's a degree of fellowship you have to Jesus that you'll begin to anticipate that appointment. It's not, it's not anything to fear. And that's my prayer for us, friends, that we will completely lose any remnant fear of death, right? Any remnant um desire for this world that makes us think that anything in this world supersedes the world to come. Not that any of us is going to die, or any of us is going to die young by the grace of God. None of us. That will happen to none of us. But you see that the Christian who lives in this world must always have eternity in view. Yes, you must you must have a win system that constantly allows you to weigh the enjoyments, the trophies, the pleasures, the good things of this world against the ultimate things of eternity. Okay. And going back to our verse then that's in front of us, right? Paul says in verse 14 that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So he uses the metaphor sleep as the metaphor for death to illustrate that um, death is not a finality for humanity, right? Death is not a finality for any of us. Sleeping doesn't necessarily mean that they are sleeping where they are right now. Sleeping is a physical metaphor, right? That is that is physically observable when someone dies. They look like they're sleeping. Are they, At least that's the closest metaphor to describe what is happening to them. But you see, their spirit is alive with Jesus, wherever it is that they are. One thing that is for sure is that they are with Jesus. And Paul says that God will bring them with him so here he's hinting at the return of jesus now verse 15 for this we say to you by the word of the lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will by no means precede those who are asleep so in this matter of the return of jesus being alive is not actually an advantage right in many ways death or at least the people who are sleeping in the lord are at some kind of advantage, Paul says that we will by no means precede them. Why? For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, I want you to note the literalness of the signs that were accompanying the coming of the Lord, right? Because this will help us interpret chapters like Matthew chapter twenty-four, right, and see that there is nothing written here that is allegorical. Right? Or that is metaphorical. These are literal expressions, right? The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. There will be a shout of the Lord's voice. So this lines up with Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 5 about His return, right? With the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is what the Bible calls the first resurrection. Right, that when 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 the Lord comes, the dead in Christ will rise and will meet him in the air. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, um we who are alive, verse 17, right, and remain shall be caught up. Now the word up in this in this verse. Let me try to find it um, because that's the word that is often translated rapture, right? Um, because the word the word ra- the word rapture by itself is not found in these verses in the Greek, right? But we find the word up, which is the Greek word hapazo hapazo can be used in a few contexts, right? Hapato can be used in the context of catching away speedily. Cut up, catching away speedily. So it means that there's going to be a twinkling of an eye um, measure about it. It's going to happen speedily. It's going to happen unexpectedly, right? There's going to be an unexpectedness about it. and an example of this in Acts is in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, right? Where the Bible says, remember after Philip um, had finished preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible says that he was cut away. I don't even think that Philip himself realized what happened to him in that moment. But he was cut away from one location, or cut up rather, from one location to another location. And this is how it will be on the rapture. That you and I will be cut up. Now, An interesting second thing that this means, right, is to cease by force, right? That there's going to be an energy that will drag us out of the world, you see? The only way that you and I can be raptured when the Lord returns in the air is because we are his. It's in that day that we're going to realize the fact that we're not really our own. You know, if somebody... (laughs) can take you up right almost without your permission then everything you called your will your purpose your agenda your sovereignty its in that day you're going to realize that it's it's it was actually secondary it was actually derived because the moment we came to jesus um, and identified with his death you know he came to us right and that's what christmas is about he identified with us He identified with our humanity, identified with our weaknesses, and eventually on the cross, he identified with our sins so that when he died, he died in our stead. All right? So that if we identify with him, we also identify with his death. All right? So it means that when you identified with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what you said by covenant is that your your life has come to an end. It means that Whatever life you have afterwards is not yours. Of course, God gives you the free will and the freedom to make choices, right? To choose and make decisions, to hear his voice. But that's because of the way that God has determined to relate with man. But sometimes the fact that God gives us the freedom to make choices, to determine who we marry, for example, to determine where we go, gives us the illusion right, that we can actually make those choices independent of God without consequences. But well, you see, when you came to Christ, your destiny became tied up with Christ. You don't have a destiny outside of Christ. And that's why it's a mistake to do things without hearing from Christ, without knowing his will, without knowing his perspective. The, the best that will happen to those things is that they will not last, right? They'll be blown away at the end of the day. So it is in this season by force, in this hapazo, Right? that we're going to realize that we're not really ours. And one of the things that this is supposed to stay upon, stay up in our hearts is confidence. When we walk on the streets, that's the kind of confidence that David had when he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. The reason I will not fear is that I'm no longer my own property and he that touches me Touch is the apple of God's eye. I need to have that awareness that Satan can't just touch me. Just like he couldn't just touch Job without permission from the Lord, right? I am God's. I belong to him. And I need to bring that in my prayer. I need to bring that understanding in my confession. I need to bring that understanding in the way I live my life, right? That's just one of the dimensions of of our belonging to God. We are his just by creation but by redemption and it's because we are his that he can seize us by force right so it's possible it's possible right that i don't know if you've had these thoughts before um, but what if you know like i'm not having a good day (laughs) what if i'm not having a good day on that rapture i love jesus but on the day this thing happens um Maybe I just insulted someone and I've not had time to make it up with God. You see that's why force will have to be applied because you are, because you belong to Jesus, there's going to be a power that will seize you. The issues of accountability and 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 judgment you know and reward will be handled later, right? internal family business. but there's going to be a power that will catch you up. Another meaning of Hapato is to take up to a new place. So there's going to be a change of location, right? We don't know what that location will be like. Paul says that it's going to be in the air, right? So we don't know what in the air means, actually. I think this is one of the things that you can allegorize, right? It can be a physical air or it can be, I don't know, some kind of spiritual realm that God will make visible to physical men but it doesn't matter what matters is that our location will change right and then the fourth meaning of apatso is that we'll be rescued from danger to catch away from danger right someone's like a like a child is about to stumble into a dangerous trap and then you'll catch the child away out of the trap so the idea of the rapture means that something dangerous will be happening on the earth for which God will need to catch us away, right when that thing happens. okay? but now look at I will be, be before we go further right? I want you to note note the little chronology we don't have much here, but I want you to note the little chronology that is here the in in online theology at least the the next epoch event, right? The next expectation for a believer is the return of the Lord, right? That's the next expectation, the return of the Lord. The return of the Lord is going to coincide with the rapture of the saints and is also going to coincide with the day of the Lord. Those three events throughout the scriptures are not separated, right? So this already um, removes the possibility that there's going to be a post-rapture tribulation and then after the post-rapture tribulation there's no, there's now going to be another return of the lord to now take those who survived the post-rapture tribulation no the new testament does not teach that doctrine in any chapter or in any verse and what the new testament teaches is that the rapture the return of the lord and the day of the lord are one event and you and i have only one opportunity to get it right. One opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Anybody who has not said yes to Jesus as at the time of this rapture is lost eternally. And that's what we're going to see in in the next chapter. Okay, So Paul is not using this scripture to intimidate the believers, right? About their eternal security, about their eternal status. Rather, he's saying, comfort one another with these words, it means that he takes it for granted that because these people are grounded in faith, because they are grounded in love and they are grounded in hope, he takes it for granted that they will be caught up, that you and I will be caught up. It's just that if God is using the language of caught up, right? <laughs> it means that there is a very real possibility of not being caught up, right? There's a very real possibility of being let left behind. Now, caught up like I've shown us, hopefully, right? Is a It's not an allegorical thing. It's an actual physical thing that will happen, right? But you see, you can also allegorically say that none of us exactly knows the day, the moment, the hour of our death, right? It's not many people that God gives the privilege to have a long walk towards death. And I pray that all of us will have that privilege, right? But it's not everybody that has that privilege. So for many people, there's a sense in which dying is a being caught up. And in those moments, you find that that's not the time often, if God does not give you a slow walk towards death, right? That's not the time to try to make it right. And so I'm saying that to say that there's a certain, because of the language of "cut up," right? Because of the suddenness of the Lord's return, there's a certain posture with which we have to live our lives. And every time that Jesus himself spoke about his return or the apostles spoke about the Lord's return, their emphasis was not the chronology. Their emphasis was not the calendar. Their emphasis was our posture. And if we become overwhelmed and carried away by the chronology and the calendar and we forget our posture then we have missed the the point of eschatology in the new testament remember the basis of our hope why hope is necessary in working with god is that there are certain things that god has retained in his authority for times and seasons god has determined that only him knows The times and seasons, and those purposes will only be worked out in his times and seasons. So, the instructions, the prophetic revelation that's given to us in the New Testament about the return of the Lord is not an attempt to give us an expo on the times and seasons. I think this is where we often miss it with prophetic writings, especially as it regards the Eschaton. It's not an expose on how to figure out the times and seasons but rather it's an admonition to encourage us towards hope yes that there is something to look forward to that there is an experience of deliverance of ultimate deliverance right from this body of flesh where we'll be given new bodies where we will meet with the lord in the air there is that experience and that experience is eternal and it's an experience worth longing for, right? It's an experience worth waiting for. It's an experience worth hoping for. Okay. So now we can read First Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 1 to 11. Before we do, do you have any thoughts or any questions? Is it clear so far?
4: nice or something yes please all right so yeah basically talking about death like you said you see according to understanding i have as guys that i just feel like you see when you have an upright walk with god like every step with god you see death is not something that could just come and take you that way we have people that have worked with God all around in the scriptures that you see examples of people like you know Paul he says I've finished my race you know he yeah. knows that this is coming even Jesus said it it is finished because he has finished the work he came to do so death could come even Simeon he got when he said he wants to see the Lord before he dies so there's an agreement when you keep walking with God, it's like when you have a relationship with someone, there are times which you walk with, you see. When you walk with God, you find out that there's this confidence, like you said, this boldness that you walk around. You know that, like David said, the Lord is my, even though I walk through the valley of shadow, I fear no evil, you see. So the confidence in which these things are being built is dependent on the more intimate you get with God. In fact, there's a, there's a way you... Get with God. That's why sometimes you see people with so much confidence. And I just want to say confidence and faith. You see, when, how do you know that when you lay your hands on this person, that God is going to heal the person? So it's dependent on the intimacy in which you walk with God. And then you see there's part of him that he gives to you that makes you feel like him in some context. So talking about that, like you said, I got it very clear. And yeah, I first found out that you don't just... It's not something you need to worry about. You need to worry about the status, not death. Yeah. So thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. Yeah. Um. Just to add there that it's very possible for us to number our days, right? Psalm chapter 90 that we read during the prayer introduced us to that possibility in verse 12. Teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Yes. As we walk in intimacy with God, it's very possible for us to number our days. But it doesn't mean that God would ne- is bound to necessarily tell us the moment of our death. Of course, we wish he tells us. So, for example, if you think about Stephen, right? Um, He was walking with God. He was not afraid of death. But I don't think he woke up that morning realizing that it's going to be his last day. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he was full of the anointing of the Spirit and he was ready for just another Blasting the Holy Spirit, but you see, like you were saying, it, it didn't matter that whether he knew or not, right? That it was his last day. What mattered more that he is that he was ready, he was ready, and that's what is the heart of these letters. So all of us need to pray and strive for God to help us number this because it's a possibility in God, and we can ask him for it, right? To help us number this, and maybe as, and it's, it's especially important if you're like me and if you've grown up in a context where some people have died right and have have been have been almost in quote cut off before their time if you like so it's necessary for you to personally go on that journey and try to understand from god um okay death should not take you by surprise so what is my journey with death when is my appointment he, he will not necessarily give you a specific date but he can give you hints and say, ah, this is how your appointment will be. And then you can have the confidence in what God wants to do in your life. Or he can decide not to give you any hints. And that's not a problem because, because the goal is to be ready, right? It's to live a ready life. And a ready life is worth living. And so that should be the prayer of our hearts. Teach us, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Thank you, Victor, for that contribution. Okay, Adenike, okay, can you read for us then from verse 1 to verse 11 of First Thessalonians chapter 5?
1: But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have known me that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as if in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon the pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. We are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, or let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who have of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you, are, just as you also are doing. Okay.
0: Yes, thank you, Denikim. Okay, so I think that these verses already highlight some of the things that we've mentioned, right? Um, But let's let's try to pick out the important pieces here. So verse 1 says, concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, right? Because you don't know the exact timing, even though God has given us some hints about the seasons and the kind of, um, signs that will accompany that season, and that's what we're going to see when we read second when we get to second Thessalonians chapter two. But the times and the seasons, right, are not the primary concern of the one who knows God. right? And then in verse two, it tells us the the surprising nature of it. It says that for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night now. The, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, right? Not to those who have believed in the Lord. And by that, I mean that God is not planning the day of the Lord. And and by the way, I feel like this this, this day of the Lord is calling me. But let's focus on this for now. God is not planning the day of the Lord, as I say. <laughs> Which day can I catch all these sinners on our especially these my children? that have not been following my instructions. No, he is definitely not planning that, especially not for his children. Rather, it comes like a thief in the night for people who are in the night, right? Because people who are in the night have no sense of the expectation of God. So that's why the passage says that they would rather be saying peace and safety. Now, if if you work with Jesus personally, Right? if you work with Jesus personally, I believe that you're going to have signs in your spirit before the day of the Lord comes, right? Even though you may not know um, logically or uh, cognitively that the meaning of those signs is that the Lord's return is literally in the next one hour, right? Or it's literally tomorrow. But as the, as the Lord begins to draw near from heaven, if it is the same Lord who is in heaven that lives in you, there'll be movement in your heart. And if it is true that you're of God, there will be enough recalibration time for you, right? The grace that saves you will be so close to you that it will be easy for you to yield yourself to the Lord. And you see, it's in those moments, right, that whatever theology that it is that you have believed will be necessary. Because if the theology that you've believed is that ignore your conscience, you know, like whatever you do with your body is fine, then what you're going to do with that prompting might position you in a place where Jesus might say, I do not know you, right? So that's what I strongly believe, that what Paul is saying here, that it's not possible that you will be surprised by that day. Rather, the people who will be surprised by that day are the people who do not know the Lord at all, right? The people who do not have the Lord in their heart at all so that they will not have any faculty, any sense by which they can even pick it up that there's imminent imminent danger, right? Instead, they'll be saying peace and safety. And then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So you can see that destruction is the thing that is coming upon the earth. This is... This is the fulfillment of the parable in Matthew chapter 13 of the tares and the wheat, right? This is the plucking out of the tares from the kingdom of God. And the Bible uses the term destruction. So it's interesting for us to see that the idea of the day of the Lord is tied to the judgment of God. And what God wants us to see here is that for millennia, right for thousands of years god gives us room if you like to exercise ourselves right he keeps giving us hints that he's there that he's god and he keeps drawing us to himself right but he gives us room to exercise ourselves if you 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 can call it the day of men right he gives us an anointing we can do ministry we fall into sin we rise and we fall you know we 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 sometimes even ignore God. We get offended at God and it's as though there is no response from heaven. We look at the earth, there is a lot of injustice. There are wars and there's famine. There are a lot of contradictions to the character of God, to the nature of God, to the to even what you might consider to be the promise of God. And all of these things look like when will God answer? The Bible says that there is a day of God. There is a day. The reason why God does not brutally, as we sometimes expect, punish iniquity today, is because there is a day. And you see, the the reality of this coming day is one of the things that's supposed to plant in our hearts, a concern, a burden for sinners, right? To warn them about this day, that there is a God who created the universe and he's not oblivious. He's not unaware of the things that go on in it. And that he's not unaware of the things that we do with our free will, right? And with the power of choice that he gives to us. But then he tells us something about you and I in verse 4. He says, brethren, you are not in darkness. So now this is what I want us to see about this idea of darkness, right? That there is an ontological being in darkness. And Paul is convinced that nobody who has received Christ is in darkness or of darkness what that means is that darkness is a state of existence right it's a state of existence where you cannot discern god or discern the things of god and even if you can discern them you cannot appreciate them you cannot see the light the proof that someone is in darkness is that the person cannot recognize jesus as lord the person cannot see that they are a person cannot see that they need God, right? The person cannot exercise faith. You know that it's not easy to exercise faith. To you and I who are by the mercy of God in the light, it seems commonsensical, if there's such a word, for us to exercise faith, right? It seems natural for us to trust God, for us to believe in God. But you see, if it was natural and if it was, something that we could make up by ourselves, right? Then many people around us would have found God and believed in him. But you see, it is because of being in darkness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that if our gospel be hid, it is hid from those who are perishing or who are in darkness. And the way that darkness works is that the prince of this world has placed a veil over their spiritual eyes. So he says that you and I are not in darkness. And because we are not in darkness, because we have the faculty of faith, we have the faculty of hope, we have the faculty of love, that day cannot take us by surprise. He says that we are sons of light and not sons of darkness. So now verse four and verse five are the ontological being in darkness or being in light, right? However, it's possible for someone who is, in the light meaning that that is his state that is his calling that is where he or she is supposed to operate from it's possible for someone who is in the light to sleep or to walk in darkness and that's why in john's letter of first john chapter one he said if we walk in the light so it's possible that even though that i am off the light right because i have been saved and i've received god's son into my heart and so because of that, I'm off the light. It's possible for me to turn off the light. Remember, we looked at that in First John, right? It's possible for me to, to close the Bible, the word of God, and not read it. Or even if I read it, um, I drift. You know, we looked at drifting when we did Hebrews. I, I don't allow the word of God to, to, to examine me, to prune me, to check me, to test me, to know me, to try me right i'm just drifting along it means that i'm not using the light it's possible for me to neglect the gathering of ourselves together because that's a source of light when we come together and that's walking in darkness it's possible for me to quit praying and that's walking in darkness it doesn't mean that i'm not a christian it doesn't mean that i'll not be raptured right it just means that i'm walking in darkness. And there are certain things that will attain to my walking in darkness. One of them is going to be the fear of death, right? One of them is going to be that that day of the Lord is going to take me unexpectedly. And yes, even though I will be raptured, right? Because I am off the lights and I've believed in the son of God. <laughs> I will, I will wish that I was not this unprepared. Right. my life will flash before my eyes, and I will, and I will wish that I was, I was more ready for the Lord. So that's what he's saying. He says therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. You see, because we walk in this world, there is a carnal sense of security, right, that can come upon us. You know, when you have an apartment, it's comfortable. You can sleep. You have food. You know, you have movies. <laughs> Maybe you have good friends. There's a there's a sense in which you can just settle into life, especially as Christians. We can just settle into life. And we become blind to the spiritual nature of life. We become blind to the calling, to the assignment that God has for us. Right? To the reason for which God saved, saved us. He says, let us not sleep. Because those who sleep do so at night. So let us not entertain spiritual blindness and how do you know that you're sleeping you know that you're sleeping when your vitality is no longer there and what do i mean by your vitality i mean your capacity and your ability to exercise faith there is no excitement for that anymore your capacity to walk in love or to exercise the hope that is in christ when that begins to happen then you know that you're sleeping He says, and those who get drunk, they get drunk in the night. Another possibility, right, of a hopeless Christian life is that we can become drunk. And by drunk is meant here, we can become filled with the things of the world. So that the love of God begins to slowly dissipate from our hearts. So the apostle tells us that this is not the posture that we're supposed to take. But rather... In anticipation of the Lord's return, in anticipation of the fact that we are going to see Jesus face to face, right? We're going to stand before the one who saved us, the one who poured out his blood for us, the one who loves us unconditionally. In anticipation of that fact, the one who sees us, who sees the depths of our souls, says, let us who are of the day, who are of the light, we are already of light by the grace of God. So let us be sober, and let us put on these three pillars of our faith, the breastplate of faith and love. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, he called this the breastplate of righteousness, and in, I think, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as well, he called this righteousness on the left hand and on the right hand. It means that the problem of righteousness, right?, both internal righteousness and external righteousness can be resolved by a commitment to faith and love. It says, let us put it on. Yeah. Let us take on the kind of initiatives that makes us run to God, that makes us trust God, that allows the love of God in us to overflow. And let us wear as a helmet helmet the hope of salvation. We need to guard our minds with the memory of the Lord's return. We need to always set before us the eternality of our lives and the eternality of life itself. And we need to have the hope that these our vile bodies will be transformed. The hope that because we have believed in Christ, the best is yet to come. Yes, each of us needs to have that hope that I'm not laboring in vain. I'm not punching the air. I'm not, I'm not striving or striking in vain. But there is a hope to which I was called. I've been marked by heaven. I've been marked for an inheritance. And I press into that hope. It tells us that for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So we don't only live by him, you know? That's what First John, I think, chapter 3 tells us, right? That we live by him. We don't only live for him, but we live with him. So that if we make a practice, make a decision, a commitment to live with him, to live before his face every day, It will make no difference whether we are asleep or we are awake. That day of the Lord will not take us by surprise. And eventually when we stand before the Lord, there will be no guilt and there will be no shame. We will know that we served him to the best of our capacity. We will know that we utilized every drop of grace that he was faithful to point to us. If you read Matthew chapter 24, or rather Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the servants, right? And the talents, the servants who receive different talents. You'll find out that when it comes to the return of the Lord, when it comes to the question of faithfulness, the servant, the child of God, the person who is most at risk, let's put it like this, is the one who feels they only have one talent. Or maybe not even feels, the one who actually has only one talent. Because this is the one who is most likely to bury it, to think that it doesn't matter, to think that the Lord was unfair by giving me one talent, to forget that I was even given a talent at all, to become discouraged, to stop waiting, to lose my readiness, to put off the armor of light, to lay aside faith and hope and love. It is the servant that has one talent that is most likely to despise it. But the posture of the one who lives ready is the one who decides that even if it's one talent I've got, I'm going to spend it for Jesus. If all I have is my heart, maybe I don't have any skill. <laughs> I don't have any life skill. I don't have any ministry skill. But what I have my heart. I'm going to pour it on Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to spend it loving on him. As far as the decision is mine, I choose to love the Lord. I'm going to seek out his counsel. I'm going to seek out his word. And I'm going to obey his commands, the things that he tells me to do. It says that Christ died for us for this purpose. So that whether we are asleep or awake, whether we are alive or we are in the world to come, we should live together with him. And friends, I want to thank God for each and every one of us, right? I want to thank God because I know in my heart that um, our commitment to this Bible study, even when it's not easy <laughs> to commit, and and the, in the face of the battles and the difficulties that you're facing in your personal life, is proof, proof that God has done a genuine work of faith in your heart. And I want to encourage you to hold on to that work of faith, especially when it's not easy to hold on to that work of faith, to persevere, for there is going to be a reward. There's going to be a reward. God will not forget. He will not be unjust. He will not be unfaithful. Parts of that reward will begin to unfold in this age. Jesus promises that parts of that reward will unfold in this age. To not always be hard. At some point, the struggle will give way and you will enter into a different season. Part of that reward will come in this life. But our ultimate expectation is not anything that this life can offer. It is that we will meet with Jesus. Yes, we will meet with him. And in that day, faith will become sight. John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. When I see him, I will be like him. I will be like him. And my greatest joy, my greatest joy, nothing no no joy I've experienced or I will experience on earth will compare to the joy of hearing him say, Well done, well done, to the joy of seeing a smile on his face. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you give us extra oil, Lord, in our lamps. We pray that you give us extra oil in our lamps, Jesus. Keep us burning. Make us wise. Make us wise. Teach us. Teach us to number our days, O God, to look beyond the suffering, to look beyond. The hardship to look beyond the contradictions to look beyond the difficulty to look beyond the facades teach us oh god to number our days. teach us lord that we may gain a heart of wisdom may we be numbered may we be numbered among the wise lord as we go into 2024 in our posture in our attitude in our commitment in our prayers in our loving, in our expression of faith, may we be numbered among the wise. May we be counted and says, these are the wise ones upon whom the wisdom of God has helped. Yes, we pray, O God, that the days will not determine our posture. No, that the circumstances will not determine our posture, That that the news, the current affairs will not diminish our weighting. Yes, but that our light will burn brighter through every season. Will burn brighter through every season. Teach us, O God, what it means to put on the armor of light. Yes, that even when we are physically asleep, that our spirits are burning with the flames of heaven. Teach us, O God, what it means to put on the armor of light. May we put away every hidden thing of dishonesty, Lord. May we put away every hidden thing of darkness. May we put it away. May we lay it aside. May we count it as worthless. And may we walk as children of light. May we walk as children of light. I say to you, arise and shine for your light is come. Awake, awake, and Christ will give you light. May we walk in the fullness of that light, Jesus may we be ready may we be ready jesus oh i just want to give us a moment to talk to the lord just five minutes to talk to the lord